0: Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, where oppression is on the menu. Well, it's a pleasure having all of you join me for Episode 8 of the Liberty Cafe. And it's also a pleasure to have John Daniel Davidson join us today. John is an excellent reporter and prolific writer for The Federalist. Prior to that, he was the director of healthcare policy at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Everywhere I've seen him, John has displayed an innate ability to discover and explain the truth about the issue he is investigating. So that's why I thought I'd have him on today. Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, John.
1: Thanks for having me, Bill. My pleasure.
0: Well, John, writing about issues and events that the left likes to ignore, dismiss, or gloss over seems to be a specialty of yours. Tell me, how did you get so contrary and decide to put that gift to work as a journalist? <laughs>
1: well, I think it's hard not to be contrary in in the culture today, uh, given the the uh, hard direction that the culture is going has turned left, and the sort of um, epistemic closure that we see in in uh, in progressive thought. I, I don't know. I, it, it's almost, uh, I never thought of myself as a contrarian or a countercultural or, or anything of the sort. But, uh, when I started, uh, writing, uh, you know, at first just started writing book reviews and, and little essays for first things and then doing some healthcare pieces for national review during the Obamacare debates. Um, it, you know, the more you write and the more you engage the cultural issues and political issues of the day, the more you see uh, just how much of a stranglehold the left has on cultural and political discourse in this country, and the more things you find to be contrarian about. Um, so uh, that, that's a, that's a short answer to a long question, but, uh, uh, but I, I, I think that being Contrarian is sort of the posture that conservatives kind of have to take toward the mainstream culture right now.
0: Well, you had a nice, cushy job, if you will, steady employment <laughs> at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. You, you you jumped over into journalism, which at the time and still is going through a lot of change. Why, why did you decide to to make that that leap?
1: Well, I don't know if uh, uh, maybe my colleagues at TPPF could have uh, uh, could have told you as much, but. Being at a think tank was a bit of an unusual thing for me. I, I had for um, my entire professional career since college been in journalism. And, and so going back to journalism was kind of a return to form for me. Uh, and, and really what it was, was the opportunity um, at the Federalist to cover the 2016 election. I, I had been writing uh, off and on for the Federalist uh, since they launched in 2013 uh, and as we approached the 2016 general election, Ben Dominus, the publisher, asked if I, if I would come on board as, as their um, uh, uh, senior correspondent to cover the election. So I, I couldn't say no. Um, and because uh, I knew that the 2016 election would be a historic uh, sort of once in a lifetime type of election. Uh, and it turned out to be in ways that I don't think anybody could have predicted. Uh, and so now, we're looking at maybe a uh, another once in a lifetime type of election. Maybe all of our elections are going to be once in a lifetime from here on out. I, I don't know, uh, but that, that's how I uh, got back to journalism. I should say.
0: Okay. Well, yeah, it seems like everything's just one continuous election these days. And, exactly. And, and we're, as I somebody said the other day, we're we're getting to a point where we're, we haven't been this divided since right before the Civil War. It, it's, it's getting pretty pretty tough these days. Well, I'd, I'd like to talk about some of the things you've written about lately, and a couple of those things uh, that really make the left uncomfortable when they're confronted with the facts about them are, are COVID-19 and Obamagate. But before we get to those, uh, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the something that, that's likely makes some folks on the right a little uncomfortable, mm. and that's the murder of Ahmad Arbery. Mm. Uh, you wrote a piece recently, a couple of pieces recently about that. Why did you decide to take that one on?
1: I, I think that this is one of those issues, you know, sort of uh, broadly speaking, criminal justice um, and narrowly speaking, you know, uh, situations like this, The, the tragic uh, murder of this, this young man that for whatever reason, the right is uncomfortable with. And I, I don't know why that is exactly, um, but I think it's important to uh, be clear about about uh, these things when we see them happen. Because as conservatives, as people on the right, due process and the rule of law and fair and equal treatment for everybody, regardless of their uh, race or 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 socioeconomic status, you know, that should be paramount for us. We should care about that more than anyone else. And, uh, for some reason, a lot of conservatives get uncomfortable with this kind of stuff. And, and so, you know, the case of Ahmaud Arbery, uh, this, this, uh, young man, 25 year old black man, uh, jogging uh, through a neighborhood, a, um, 64 year old white guy, former cop and, uh, investigator for the district attorney's office. This is in Southeast Georgia. Thinks that he recognizes this jogging man from, uh, you know, security cam footage from his neighbor who had his car broken into or something day, days before. It was never a police report filed. So he, he calls his son uh, and they, they jump in a truck. Both of them are armed and they, they chase this guy down, confront him. The guy fights back as anyone would confronted by two armed strangers and uh, they, they, the son uh, shoots and kills him. Uh, it's a terrible story of uh, really uh, a former police officer and district attorney investigator taking the law into their own hands, assuming authorities they did not have. Uh, and then really the bigger story is the way the local district attorneys tried to sweep it under the rug and, and claim that they were acting within the bounds of Georgia's uh, citizens arrest laws and self-defense laws. And and now it's come out that this is all, you know, the, the truth of it's coming out. This video was released that shows what happened. Uh, they just arrested the third guy who took the video, who I guess was an accomplice with the, the father and son. They basically raised up a posse and, and went on, went after this guy, an armed posse. And, and uh, it's important to talk about these things because I think it, it is the case I think it's undeniably the case that being young and black in America means that, that you uh, have a much harder time when it comes to the criminal justice system, when it comes to being treated fairly by the police and by the courts. Uh, and and uh, that's not right. And, and this, these kinds of cases are, are where we see it. Um, and, uh, and of course, there are a lot of other cases um, but it, 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 it is true. And, that, and that's not to sort of give away the whole game to the left and say, oh, yes, sy- systemic racism explains everything. No, it doesn't. But it does ex- uh, help us to understand why some things happen. And one of the things I said about this, uh, which I wrote in, in, in uh, one of the pieces that I uh, wrote addressing this, was that we all know what, what, what would have happened if uh, the young man had been white and the killers had been black. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt about
0: that. You mentioned the fact that conservatives are uncomfortable with these kind of things, and and I think you're right in, in a lot of areas, but couldn't that be to some extent? Because no matter what happens in society, no matter what happens to blacks and minorities, that whites, conservatives, whites generally, are usually blamed by the left for that because whites are just inherently racist and and the privileges they have because they're white or the reasons that blacks are, are, uh, in the bad shape they are today. I mean, that, that could, do you think that could play a part of their uncomfortableness with this?
1: I think so. And I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. I think both things can be true. It, It is true that the left wants to attribute everything to racism and to white privilege. Uh, and, and that's unfair and not true. Uh, and and it's also the case that uh, black people do have a much harder time in this country for a whole host of reasons. And I would say chief of uh, among which is that they uh, have been very badly treated by uh, programs that were ostensibly meant to help them. Welfare programs and uh, and and uh, public schools, public schools. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, so, I, I, you know, I don't think it's an either or I think it's a both and and and. Uh, and I wish that more conservatives were comfortable holding those two things in their mind at the same time.
0: Well, I think it's definitely something that we need to, to put out there because you know, whether or not we like it, there's racism in this country. It's, it's both on all sides. I mean, it's not just whites and it's not all whites, and, but it, it's a lot of places. But when it, when it shows up, we, we really ought to deal with it head on.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. Like I said, and the, the reason that we should deal with it, especially when it comes to uh, miscarriages of justice, like we saw in the Ahmad Arbery case, because conservatives should be the ones insisting on rule of law, on due process, on on uh, equality before the law. That should be uh, uh, we should be the champions of that.
0: Well, well speaking of insisting on rule of law, uh, you know, one of the biggest stories out there right now is Obamagate where at least some people are trying to insist on the rule of law. And then, of course, the other big story out there right now is is what one observer has called the panic of 2020. So let's start with uh, the COVID-19 issue. Uh, You wrote recently what I thought was a fascinating story about what has happened in Mexico over the last couple of months during during the, the COVID scare. Would you give us a brief overview of your story?
1: Uh, the basic story in Mexico is that Mexico is in a long-term state of collapse uh, of gradual state collapse the the institutions in Mexico are weak they are um, crumbling uh, the government is corrupt at almost every level uh, and the cartels and the criminal organizations that have uh, you know caused problems in Mexico for decades are, are now more powerful than ever and are beginning to rise up almost as Alternative sources of uh, power in rivalry to 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 the federal government and to the state governments, and what we've seen one of the most fascinating developments I think we've seen with the uh, the coronavirus pandemic uh, is the rise of criminal organizations acting in the place of the state. Uh, We saw we've seen this in um, throughout uh, Latin America, Central America, uh, but we've seen it really conspicuous ways in Mexico, which should of course. You know, it's a bit of a hobby horse of mine, but Americans really should care about what goes on in Mexico. We share a two thousand mile border with them. Certainly, Texans right. care. <laughs> uh, but what we've seen in, in Mexico is the rise of these um, these cartels taking responsibility for areas under their control, distributing goods, uh, supplies to to ordinary people, and and in many cases, uh, you know, branding the supplies that they are distributing with the, they're like the cartel logo as, as though they're an NGO you know <laughs> which I guess they are a kind of an NGO but they, right. they they are so they're exercising uh uh powers that usually only states exercise not just in the distribution of of relief uh, aid during the pandemic but also in the imposition of of quarantines and lockdowns and curfews uh and doing so with you know with the same means that the state does it that is the use of force which the Mexican state does not have a monopoly on in Mexico, as we've seen.
0: I thought it was fascinating because we've seen here in America uh, what what some have called the the rise of many dictators across the United States, whether it's governors of certain states or mayors of uh, cities or county judges who have imposed some pretty strict, hardcore Uh, restrictions on people and and enforce them, as you point out, with with force, just like we've seen down in Mexico. And uh, one can take this comparison too closely, but I was wondering from your perspective is is if if you look at both countries, Mexico and the U.S., perhaps are are we seeing in both countries a shrinking of that civil society that... um, de Tocqueville saw in America and was what made us so different, unique from the rest of the world. We're going a different way instead of in Mexico, where the government's just disappearing over here. It, it's really seemed to have stepped up here in the United States. Any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I, I, it's an interesting question. I, I think that um, obviously it's, it's very different, you know, uh, circumstances <clears throat> here than in Mexico. But I will say broadly, a lot of people look, uh, at Europe and they say, and, and the European union, they say, oh, you know, uh, the European union is sort of, that's the future of the United States. You know, we're sort of becoming more like Europe. I don't think that's true. I think that the United States future is, is more like Mexico. I think we're, we're headed in the direction of Mexico. What I mean by that is exactly what you touched on that, that de Tocqueville, uh, de Tocquevillian sense of civil society where in mexico we've we've seen that atrophy and atrophy where the levels of trust in in society in mexico are very low institutions are very weak uh alternative sources of power and patronage uh, are present uh throughout all levels of society um the 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 notion of equality before the law uh is is very thin in mexico and i think that's the direction that we're that we're uh, heading in in the United States, if we don't change course, we've seen the uh, erosion in faith in our institutions in this country over the past couple of decades, uh, and that has come with uh, an erosion of, of of civic life or public life uh, and a loss of mutual trust uh, between citizens and between groups of citizens. So that, that and that accounts for part of the polarization we see in the United States. You said earlier. Uh, at the beginning of this podcast that we were, you know, more divided now than at any time, maybe since the Civil War. And I would agree with that. But I would suggest that maybe we're more divided than we were during the Civil War. Uh, you know, America really? in the 1850s and 1860s had a lot in common, a lot of important things in common that a lot of Americans today don't have in common. Uh, and, and the common ground and the places we can come together and agree and have civil discourse, I think, are shrinking. And and that's something we should really be concerned about.
0: Well, I agree. And we, we see that discord growing, it seems like, every day. And we'll see where that gets us after the November elections.
1: Oh, I'm, I'm afraid November is going to go badly, regardless of the outcome, because there's whole swaths. Of of American society on the right and on the left that are not going to accept, I think, the outcome of the election, no matter what happens. I, I can see if if Trump wins that uh, a whole swath of uh, Democrats uh, and progressives rejecting the outcome, and I can see the same thing happening if Biden wins on the right.
0: A little bit like Mexico, exactly. as you said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's um, let's move on before we uh, before we take off. Let's let's talk a little bit about. Obamagate, right? So, sure. you know, af- after th- three years of talking about little with anything about Russian involvement in the 2016 election, all of a sudden Democrats and the mainstream media have just decided that that it's a nothing burger. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's up with that?
1: Yeah, I, it's, it's strange because the, the Democrats and the media want to kind of uh, dismiss and wave away these revelations that are now coming about about the origins of the of the Trump Russia collusion investigation, uh, and and all signs that point to very nefarious things that were going on right at the tail end of the Obama administration and during the transition, and then even afterwards uh, in the FBI and, and the intelligence agencies. Uh, and I think uh, the reason I started writing about this was one to explain it to myself because it's a really complicated and convoluted story. Um, but two, because I think it's, it, it, it is the biggest political scandal of our time and it's not getting the coverage that it's due because the mainstream media are invested in it. Not, not in the coverage of it. The mainstream media are invested in it as participants in the scandal, right? Uh, uh, it, it, they are the recipients of these, of these illegal, leaks from the Obama administration that kicked off the, the Russia investigation, as you said, years that went on. The Mueller investigation went on for years. Nothing came of it. Uh, and, and now that uh, Attorney General William Barr and others are, are looking into how this all got started, they don't want to talk about it. Well, no wonder they don't want to talk about it. They're part of the story.
0: Exactly. And the number the, one
1: rule in journalism is don't become the story.
0: <laughs> yeah. So it seems to me that that the Federalist has been at the the cutting edge on a lot of the the journalism on this. Yourself and and, and Molly and, and and others. Why why do you think the the Federalist has been able to get out in front of this in front of almost all other media sources?
1: I think it's because of our of our general approach to. The mainstream media and and the narratives the dominant narratives out there and, and our approach is that uh it's very simple when you see the media reporting something just assume that they are being disingenuous that they are hiding the true story that they are are not telling uh the whole story uh and begin from that sort of skeptical assumption uh and and then and then you know be Go about your own investigation and your own reporting and your own writing. Um, the the uh, the media is is uh, invested in certain narratives, and those narratives are more important than reality. They're more important than the facts or truth, uh, and so they use the language of truth and facts, uh, fact-based journalism and objective reporting uh, to uh, advance an agenda that has nothing to do with the truth or facts and has everything to do with a narrative that serves their interests and that serves their political and cultural biases and so when you when you take as your starting place the fact that the, that the media are are not acting in good faith then it, you begin to see and it's amazing how it happens you begin to see everywhere in in almost every major story how they distort how they omit how they, uh, uh, twist the, the facts to fit their narrative. Uh, and, and that's what's obviously been happening with this Obamagate stuff. And, and I, I don't expect anyone in the media to ever own up to the absurd conspiracy theories that they peddled for almost three years that Trump was a Russian agent, but, um, uh, I'll be damned if I'm not going to say anything about it.
0: Well, it, it seems like the the measure of figuring out what's going on with the Democrats is just listen to what they're saying, read what they're writing about Republicans, and just f- figure out that that's actually what they seem to be doing. That's right.
1: That's right. Yeah, yeah the 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 uh, the things they accuse uh, the Republicans of doing, uh, you know, most loudly are, are likely because they're that that's that's what they've been doing. Uh, I certainly think we're going to find out a lot here in the coming weeks as. Uh, uh John Durham of uh, the Department of Justice continues his uh his probe into the origins of the of the Mueller probe and the Trump Russia investigation i i think that uh, that that's going to be a story to watch over the next year you
0: know a lot of people i think have been frustrated about the the, the slow pace of the the Durham investigation and in, into all this and 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 a lot of people were surprised by the, the recent developments in the Flynn case, Mm -hmm. but but not because it's uh, unlike what Obama said, that that it's not so unique that somebody that the department of justice decides not to prosecute somebody, they change their minds. But to, to bring this out in the midst of this was, was really unanticipated, I think by a lot of folks, just because they thought Barr and Durham would never go that far.
1: Yeah, I, I think what we're seeing is, is that, you know, again, to go back to this point I was making about the media, you see that the, the way the media talks about Barr is like, oh, William Barr, a once, once respected attorney general, a once respected uh, uh, lawyer, has now become a, just a, a mouthpiece of Trump, just a, a partisan hack. Well, I think just the opposite is true. William Barr is a professional, and I think he's appalled at what he's discovering about what happened uh to the Justice Department under Obama, and the way so much uh, was politicized, um, t- not just at the Justice Department but across government during the Obama administration, and uh, and he's determined to get to the bottom of it because he is a professional, because he cares about uh, about the mission of the Department of Justice, and he cares about w- w- abuses of power, and uh, they may take their time. I think it's because they are being slow and methodical and that they are determined to uh, to get to the bottom of what happened and root it out completely. And if, uh, and if there are people who broke laws that need to be prosecuted, I think they will not shy away from prosecuting those people.
0: Well, I think that's what a lot of people have questions about. And, and I, I hope you're right on that. Do you think it'll go outside, though, just some of the the mid-level bureaucrats at the FBI and the Justice Department?
1: I don't know. I'm not an expert on this stuff. Uh, like I said, I started writing about it to explain it to myself because it's so convoluted. But uh, I, I do think there is, um, you know, something to be said for executive privilege. And as I wrote the other day, uh, you know, Obama and Biden need not have committed a crime to have abused their power. Um, right. You know, and, and I, I used the example of Richard Nixon's wiretaps. They weren't illegal. It wasn't the wiretaps that got Nixon. It was the cover-up of Watergate that got him. Uh, But of course, once the American people found out about the wiretaps, they were horrified. And we passed a law, the Federal Intelligence Surveillance Act in 1978, so that that couldn't happen the way that it happened under Nixon. And I think that something similar may happen here. We may find out that the abuses of power under the Obama administration were so egregious, even if they didn't break any laws that we, we need to reform our surveillance laws and we need uh, to reform FISA uh, and we need more accountability to make sure that what the Obama administration did, uh, future administrations cannot do.
0: Well, one more thing before we go, as you're well aware of almost every political and media activity we've seen for the last three plus years has been targeted towards one thing, and, and that's ensuring that President Trump is not reelected. What, what do you see as the left strategy down the stretch here?
1: Well, I think that they think uh, that the coronavirus pandemic uh, was a great gift in this regard and that um, it's been actually disturbing to see the ways in which some on the left have cheered the economic distress that the pandemic has brought because they think it'll hurt Trump. Uh, You know, to them, Hurting Trump and making sure he doesn't get reelected is the most important thing. It's more important than the economy. It's more important than the unemployment rate. Uh, it's it's uh, it's it's more important than uh, anything. Uh, and and so I I see the way that they're going to try to uh, again shape the narrative about the pandemic to to be an argument about why Trump's leadership has failed and. Why it's a, you know everything else they've tried, uh, the Russian investigation, the Mueller probe, the, the Ukrainian impeachment gambit, all of these things have come to nothing. They've all failed, and so now they, at the eleventh hour they have this pandemic, and I think they're going to try to play that as hard as they can. I don't know what's going to happen in November. I, I, uh, I uh, journalists tend not to be very good prognosticators of what will happen. Um, uh, but I think that they've nominated the wrong person. The Democrats have nominated the wrong person in Joe Biden. Uh, as you know, every time he opens his mouth, it seems it's just another cringe inducing gaffe or something offensive, like what he said today about if you, if you don't know whether you're for me or for Trump, then you ain't black. Uh, crazy, just crazy that they, they would put someone forward like that as their as their nominee. So I don't I don't know what's going to happen. I think it'll be close because the country's so polarized. Um, right, and uh, whatever happens, we'll be paying close attention.
0: Well, I'm glad you'll be doing that. You know, the whole thing with uh, S- Senator or Vice President Biden kind of reminds me a little bit of weekend at Bernie's, <laughs> where they're just trying to keep the guy propped up long enough to get him into the White House. So.
1: Uh, yeah, and and hopefully they're uh, they, they they've been able to keep him off the campaign trail because of the pandemic. Uh, now they may they may start keeping him off the television because they don't know what he's going to say next. <laughs>
0: Well, thanks for being on today, John, and look forward to reading more of your writing about all these issues leading up to the the, uh, 2020 elections. Thanks a lot, Bill. I appreciate it. That's it for this week's edition of the Liberty Cafe. Thank you for joining us.